We now have our Bible readings, which Julie will read to us. Thank you. First reading is from Hebrews chapter 5, starting at verse 11 and going into chapter 6, verse 2. Warning against falling away. About this, we have much to say that is hard to explain, since you have become dull in understanding. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic elements of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is unskilled in the word of righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose faculties have been trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us go on towards perfection, leaving behind the basic teaching about Christ and not laying again the foundation, repentance from dead works and faith towards God, instruction about baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. The second reading is from Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey... A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honour your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving. He had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel (coughs) to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, look, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or fields, for my sake, and for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers, and sisters, mothers, and children, and fields, with persecutions, 
and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Thank you, Julie. Good, good morning. And thank you as well to... Um, to, to Caroline and to, to James and to, and to Barry for, for rescuing us this morning. Um, sort of like the person who's meant to be playing keyboards this morning has, has got COVID, so basically, obviously, can't be here. And also, a big thank you as well. They probably won't hear this, or they may later on, to, to Emma and Nicole, who've, who've stepped in once again because of illness in terms of doing the, the children's work as well. So we owe them a debt of appreciation as well. There was a wonderful word, wonderful verse, wasn't there, in, the, in that psalm. I don't know if you, you grasped it when we were saying, but when I, was, when I was looking at it, I just sort of like thought, isn't that amazing? It said this, how precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. Isn't that incredible, eh? You know, maybe as you're walking along a beach maybe this week or something like that, or you see the grains of sand and you might just think, God has so many more precious thoughts about us than all the grains of sand on that beach in the bay down below. Well, shall we pray together? Lord, as we gather in this place, we come to you in humility this morning. We pray as I speak your word, you would season it with salt, that what is of me would wash away, but what is of you would sustain us for our life to come. In Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Today's message is about the great divide. We're in week three of four, exploring the most, what I consider to be the most potent, contagious, and deadly viruses attacking the Christian faith today. They're designed to do one of two things. They're either designed to make us backslide in our faith, in some way to go back to a previous way of life, or they're designed, if you like, to make us just become stagnant, failing to move forward, if you like, in our faith. And our guide to looking at them is this book of Hebrews. And today's virus is what I've called the the Great Divide. The Great Divide is actually a lie, yet that doesn't stop its deception affecting all of us deeply. It's in direct contrast to to Jesus' teaching, yet to to many of the church leaders in this world, it's the biggest challenge facing the church today. It's not only a lie, though. It also limits our life. As we'll see this morning, it invalidates God's very purpose for all of our lives and stops each of us, if we let it, making the greatest impact for Jesus with our lives. Yet despite knowing this, no one's immune from it. And we succumb so easily. The great divide's a lie. 
It limits our lives. So let's kind of give the great divide a label, if you like, a, a, a definition of sorts we might perhaps recognise through this conversation that the Stephen Cottrell, the Archbishop of York, had with this stranger, this young woman who he was, who he was stood next to in Paddington Station at a coffee shop as he waited to pick up his coffee. And the woman, seeing that he had a dog collar on, asked him what made him become a priest. So he kind of gave her the short answer, God, and then he kind of gave her the long answer. But his response drew the young woman to note this. She said that when she saw people of faith, she found that they largely broke down into two categories. Here's the first group, if you like. Faith seemed to be their hobby. In other words, they went to church on a Sunday, but that was it. It didn't make any difference then to the life they led. In most ways, they were indistinguishable from other people's lives, except for the fact that they went to church on Sunday. And her response and her observation in a nutshell is the power of the great divide. You see, the great divide is this belief that we can also easily slip into whoever we are, that some parts of our lives are spiritual, that some parts of our life, if you like, are sacred. We might say prayer, we might say coming here to church, we might say Bible studies or whatever we might do in that sense for God and the church, but that other parts of our lives are secular and irrelevant to God. That where we might go tomorrow morning, perhaps for work, or to do some particular hobby, or with friendships. In effect, the danger is, if we're not careful, is we allow this virus to allow us to become functional atheists. And that's the power, and that's the contagious nature of this particular virus. To paraphrase the writer to the letter to the Hebrews, which might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. He says, stop being taken in. You should know this, we only overcome the virus of the great divide by stopping drinking the baby milk and moving on to the solid food of scripture. Why? Because on this Bible Sunday, it's actually biblical illiteracy, which has allowed this virus of the great divide to thrive. You see, in the Old Testament, how many Hebrew words do you think there are for the word spiritual? You know, this term that people like to talk about, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. How many Hebrew words do you think there are in the Old Testament for the word spiritual? Twelve. There are none. There we go. Thank you for having a go. How many times, let's see if we can get my meaning, how many times do you think Jesus used the phrase spiritual life Have another go. (laughs) None. Why? Because for the Jews and Jesus, all of life was spiritual. That's the lie of the great divide. It's actually evil. And actually, the writer does a very clever thing that if we could read Greek, we'd notice this. He says, spot good from evil. The Greek word for good is kalos. The Greek word for evil is kakos. 
He uses a very clever play on words to make the point. The great divide distorts God's character. Gives us this incomplete view of God as if he's only interested in part of our lives. And in part the great divide attraction, deception if you like, is because of the second group of people that this young woman described to the archbishop in their conversation. Who in her words embraced their faith so tightly it frightened everyone else away. Ever met a Christian like that? Or am I the only one? None of you are like that. So, so because, perhaps the person who said 12, but never mind. So because we don't want to be categorized in this group, I get this, we do everything we do to dance between being a Christian and not being noticed as a Christian. I've done it. I get it. And we then think it's some sort of compliment when a non-Christian friend says, you're not like those other Christians, you're, you're exactly like one of us. As if they're saying, you're just like me, but you have faith. But what really they're saying is, you're just like me and I don't see your faith. And that's what I realized. I'd succumbed to the great divide. Or another reason for the so-called attractiveness or deceptiveness of the great divide is because of the hit we might have to take in this increasingly hostile environment to Christians. I get it too. I saw it just this past week, so we bunker down, perhaps for an easy life, which in part was what this Christian community that the writer to the letter of Hebrews was saying they were in danger of doing. The great divide is a lie. It's a powerful lie, and its power is seen even when we know the sacred secular divide is not true. It carries on doing its damage in work anyway. Don't believe the lie, for those of you who work, that there is a hierarchy of holiness in work. Don't believe the lie that I'm the only one who's got a God job. Or that I'm the only one who's got a God calling. That whatever you do tomorrow if you go out to work is your God job. It's the place that God has put you at this time. And that my God job isn't more important than your God job. Right? It says, stop being taken in. It's about good from evil. But not only is it a lie, the great divide, it actually limits our life. Because if we think about it, it limits our everyday enjoyment of God. And also our everyday role in God's purpose. Here's the danger. The danger is, at best, we become a part-time worker for God. At worst, our life starts to reflect the lives that some of these Hebrew Christians had fallen into. That they'd were in danger of backsliding, falling back to a previous way of life. And the writer says, be alert, notice this, or stagnant in their faith, failing to press forward. After all, was it not Dorothy Sayers who said, how can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concerns with nine-tenths of their lives? And did Jesus not say the same? If you like, in his encounter with the rich man in Mark's gospel. You see, Jesus didn't call any of us to a life of parts. He just said, it's the whole life in following me. You see, he, he encounters this rich man 
This rich man, if you like, who was living this life of parts and Jesus shows them how a part life approach to following him is never enough. You see, the rich man had everything the world could offer. You name it, he had it. And it wasn't enough. Because it never is. It always leaves you dissatisfied, wanting more. And the missing part in the rich man's eyes was he thought was the God part or the part that Jesus could give him. As if by adding the God part to the rest of the parts of his life, he would then be whole. But with Jesus even adding the God part to the rest of the sum of the parts of our lives does not make you whole. Jesus plus everything, or actually Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And the virus of the great divide, if we're not careful, forces us to live a life of parts. And the writer says, stop being taken in. You should know this. Stop drinking the baby milk, if you like. Spot good from evil. What Jesus knew, what we all find out, I suppose, to some extent, is if we try to follow him with other parts, we become like the Christians in the letter either in danger of backsliding in our faith or becoming stagnant. And so Jesus says to this rich man, the life of parts will never work. And he then explains how a wholehearted approach to following him is difficult. It's difficult especially, Jesus says, because he's rich, because he's wealthy, because he's got many possessions. But he says it's not impossible with God's help. You see, I guess we know this, don't we? That when we have wealth, when we have possessions, and really, we all have them, it's very easy for them to possess us. Jesus knew this, and so did the the rich man. To make his point, Jesus uses the analogy. If you like this impossible analogy of a camel, the largest animal in the Middle East going through just about the smallest hole, the eye of the needle. It just doesn't happen. It's impossible. Unless by a miracle from God. But what's impossible in the natural order is possible in God's order. And then Jesus explains and he promises how a whole life approach to following him is truly satisfying. Notice the exponential blessings he talks about in this life. But also note his words. There'll be some persecutions in that before the eternal ones of the age to come. Where to paraphrase C.S. Lewis in the last battle. Where every day, every chapter is better than the one before. In effect, what Jesus is saying, to overcome this virus of the great divide, we have to shift from this part-life approach to a whole-life approach to following him. So to finish, let me leave you with, if you like, three thoughts from this letter that the writer outlines to these Hebrew Christians, if you like, for how we do that, for how we can look to identify markers in our own lives of saying, are we still being an infant Are we still living on that milk or are we being fed on the solid food of the mature? And so what the writer says is he says, first of all, in verse 12, he says, here's the A, take responsibility. On this Bible Sunday, we all have to take responsibility to teach ourselves this book. 
You see, the writer says, don't be reliant on the milk, if you like, that someone like me would give you. Learn to be able to feed yourself from this book. You see, the great divide stems from a distorted and incomplete view of God. And the only person who allows that to happen in my life is me. The only person that allows that to happen in your life is you. Imagine how revolutionary it would be if we just fed on those writers' words. If we took the time and effort and skilled ourselves up. For as the great chef said this week, apologies for some of you. Pep Guardiola. You cannot cook a good dish if you don't spend time in the kitchen. And it's what those who adopt a whole life approach to following Jesus do to overcome this virus of the great divide. Take responsibility, that's the A. Here's the B, no more than the basics. You see, twice in this passage we're just exhorted, aren't we? Don't go back to stage one. Don't go back to square one. But instead move beyond the foundations of our faith in following Jesus. What he actually says to them is this, isn't it? You shouldn't need someone else to teach you again the basic elements of the oracles of God. Or you should be able to leave behind by now the basic teaching of Christ, not having to lay that foundation again because you know it. And you can almost feel in some ways, as I was reading it, I could almost feel the writer's disappointment and frustration with them as well as his scolding, as well as his concern, as well as his enthusiasm that he wanted to move them on. And so maybe just in case we're not sitting comfortably, uncomfortably enough. You see in this list of the foundations? I don't know what we think of the so-called basic elements of the oracles of God or the basic teaching of Christ that the, that the writer talks about. It may just bite a little bit more where it hurts because we read, well, okay, we might, we might be okay with these ones. Repentance from dead works and faith towards God. That's the milk. Repentance from dead works and faith towards God. We could probably get that. But what about these when we go on? This is still the milk. Instructions about baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So, how do we look at these? Because that's the milk, according to the writer to this letter that he was writing to. We see them perhaps as sitting side by side together, don't we? That those first two, repentance from dead work, some faith towards God, they're, they're kind of like what it means as we begin the Christian life of Christian conversion. What did Jesus say? Repent and believe is where it all begins and where it rebegins in our lives. Repent and believing. Repenting and believing of our practice of following the great divide. But then there's these latter four. Maybe there was some sort of Christian catechism that they had to know and learn and explain and articulate to others before, after they'd repented and believed. Kind of like this idea of baptism and, and, and laying on of hands. They have this commissioning theme to them, don't they? 
if you like, the badge of belonging to, to Team Jesus who are then sent out as a disciple of Jesus Christ and then the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment reflecting the Christian hope of the age to come inaugurated in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and which will reach its completeness at the end of time at the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment and if you're now struggling a little bit to catch up and you're thinking, what does that mean? Teach yourself. And then if you're not sure, come and ask me. Or come and ask somebody else and say, what does this mean? Because we're called and we're commissioned to be team Jesus, if you like, sent out as disciples to be Easter Sunday people in a Good Friday world out there. And those, the writer says, who adopt this whole life approach, They've drank the milk, but they're hungry for the solid food that comes from those foundations. The A, take responsibility. The B, know the basics. And here's the C, be that disciple maker. If you like, apply the solid food of God's wisdom to your life situation. You see, knowledge alone isn't enough, is it? We then need the wisdom. The wisdom to be able to apply this book into our life situations. The wisdom to be able to make those responsible decisions as an adult in the situations that we face. A number of you have, in this congregation and in the others, have participated in the last year in at least one of these Bible studies that I've, that I've been running maybe from 1 Thessalonians, maybe from 1 Peter, now at the moment from the book of Ruth. And if you have, thank you. They're all produced by an organization called the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. They're designed, if you like, to help us to learn this book, but they're also designed to help us to be disciple makers. Each one of us on what is known as our front line. You see, each of us, whoever we are, we all have a front line. It's that everyday place where we will live, where we will work, where we will study, where we will play, where we're likely to encounter people who don't follow Jesus Christ. Where we can make an impact for them. You see, when we think about each of us every day, our front lines may be within the walls of our home. Our front line could well be somewhere outside of our home. Our front line could be our workplace. It helps us to realize how all of our lives, and not just our Sundays, are opportunities for Jesus. Your work is your God job. Your leisure activities are your God activities. Wherever God puts you each day consistently, you're called there for Jesus Christ. So if we take the solid food that we've learned and start applying God's word to reflect our front line. Where might we see God's hand at work there? What might God be teaching me? What do we maybe sense God might be doing there? How does my faith change how I view this place? You see, that's how we become the disciple maker. That's how we apply the solid food of God. That's how we overcome this virus of the great divide. It's how, as King David said in the Psalms, we taste and see that the Lord is good. 
and the rich banquet that he has prepared for each one of us. Shall we pray together? Lord Jesus, who proclaimed repent and believe in the good news. So Lord, we take this moment just now to repent where we might have lived the lie of the great divide, where we might have allowed this particular virus to limit our lives. And so we ask, Father, that you would deliver us. Deliver us to be on our front lines, who you would be if you were us. Through applying the solid food of your word, we pray. In your name and for your glory. Amen.